So we've been looking at Nicodemus's encounter with, uh, with Jesus. We've, we've spent a little bit of time there because I think it's a really important encounter. Uh, I think it's probably the clearest presentation of the gospel that Jesus gives, uh, maybe in all the gospels, cer- certainly in the gospel of John. <clears throat> and we, one of the things I've really tried to emphasize is you know, who Nicodemus is. This is like, going to be important as we continue on in John because John's going to kind of compare and contrast some things. And we've talked about how Nicodemus is one of the Pharisees, not just any Pharisee, is part of the, the ruling council, uh, the you know, 70 that were uh, kind of in, at the forefront of Judaism and kind of in charge of, of regulating things. Um, Pharisees sometimes get a little bit of a bad rap um, because Jesus you know, had the most confrontations with Pharisees compared to, to any other group. And in, in some senses, that, that is deserved. They were uh, very legalistic. They did not recognize Christ for who he is. But there's a lot uh, that the Pharisees got right. Um, they were kind of the theological conservatives of the day. They uh, subscribed to a very literal reading of, of the scriptures, whereas other groups uh, either rejected big portions of, of what would now be the Old Testament or uh, you know, didn't really ex- take it at, at face value like the Pharisees did. Um, you know, the, their motivation to to try to adhere to God's law was certainly uh, commendable. If, if human efforts could please God, it would be really hard to top what uh, a good Pharisee like Nicodemus would have done in terms of devotion and theological soundness. And, um, <clears throat> but when he, Nicodemus encounters Jesus, Jesus tells him that not only are his efforts to please God insufficient to, to even enter the kingdom of God, but he's not even on the right track. He doesn't need to amend what he's doing. He needs to completely start again with a new birth. Nicodemus fundamentally, I think, fails to understand human inability, that, that his efforts are, are not going to come close to measuring up to, to what's required uh, from God. Um, he needs to look outside of himself, and he needs to look to God for any hope of salvation. And you know, it, it's understandable that it's going to take Nicodemus a while uh, for, for this to sink in. He's lived his whole life basically in the wrong direction or with... Uh, with, with kind of the, the fundamental thing wrong, at least. We, he only speaks three times in this conversation. And the, the final two times, he's basically you know, questioning, you know, how, uh, questioning uh, what, what Jesus is saying. The, the last thing that he says is, how can these things be? And that's where Nicodemus stops speaking in this conversation. We're not told how Nicodemus responds, although we see him twice later in the gospel, and he's acting in, in a positive way towards Jesus. So I, I think at some point this thing does sink in, but it probably doesn't sink in right away. At least that's how I would read this. Fundamentally, Nicodemus doesn't understand how salvation can be outside himself. None of his efforts can make him right with God. He's seeing for the first time that his efforts cannot merit anything from God. He's seeing that he has nothing more to commend himself to God than anyone that he's ever looked down on in his life. And considering that he's a Pharisee and considering what we see of the Pharisees in the gospel, that's probably a pretty long list of people that he's you know, lived his life looking down on. So just to kind of remind us of uh, what we've covered, the Nicodemus, or Jesus really kind of opens uh, this conversation trying to get across to Nicodemus, I think, the idea of human inability, that, that his efforts aren't going to measure up. <clears throat> but simply getting that across isn't going to be enough uh, for Nicodemus to be saved. Human inability is an earthly thing. Um, I think that's what Jesus means when he says, if I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you the heavenly things that you need for salvation? 
And that's what Jesus is uh, going to move to. <clears throat> uh, God, God's going to need to reveal things to Nicodemus for salvation. And that begins really in verse 14. It was Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Uh, kind of a very quick uh, summation of the gospel, pointing to how the Old Testament shows that. <clears throat> Last time we looked just at John 3.16, and we didn't finish. We're going to spend a little bit more time in John 3.16. But uh, let me read that and the verses that, that follow. Uh, we, we will get past John 3.16 to some of the, the later verses as well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. <clears throat> For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. <clears throat> so, the construction so loved makes it, I think, very clear in John 3.16, well, there it is, 3.16, that you know, the, the, the main emphasis is kind of the magnitude of God's love in these verses. And we, we talked quite a bit about God's love in the, the last lecture, or last uh, lesson. <clears throat> but um, what, where we finished was uh, in, in what way does... Uh, does this show the magnitude of God's love? And we kind of looked at two possibilities. Uh, both of these are, are theologically correct, but I think John means one of the two, and he almost certainly means whichever one magnifies God's love more. Uh, God's love is so glorious because of how many people it covers, or God's love is so glorious because it's bestowed on such ill-deserving recipients. And I, I just want to take a little bit and kind of remind you of what I mean by ill-deserving. Um, if someone was just kind of randomly walking across the parking lot and I were to, for whatever reason, give them $1,000, that person would be undeserving. I have no idea who they are. There's nothing good or bad about walking across our parking lot. It's just sort of a, a random person that I would, would be completely neutral towards. That would be undeserving. If someone was taking a sledgehammer to my family car and I were to give them $1,000, that recipient would be ill-deserving. Um, uh, and that, that's what, what God's love is doing. God's love is not towards neutral parties. God's love is towards people who hate him uh, and want nothing to do with him and are about to crucify his son. Um, that, that's who God's love is applied to, and that what, is what makes God's love so glorious. And so I think the second of these possibilities must be the correct one, that must be the meaning that, that John has. One of the things I, I think is worth mentioning is that this is a book or a verse that comes up quite a bit when discussing one of the five points of Calvinism called uh, limited atonement. So I want to just start here really quickly with the definition of limited atonement. Um, I got this off of monergism just because I thought this would be a nice standard definition. Uh, by the way, if you're kind of interested in theological resources, uh, this is a fairly good site to go to. It would be kind of uh, broadly Calvinistic, so it's not specifically Presbyterian. Reformed Baptists and you know, others would uh, uh, 
would, would be on, on that site as well. But there's a, a lot of very good resources on that site. <clears throat> and the, the first sentence is what I really want to kind of focus on. You know, Christ's redeeming work was intended to save the elect only and to actually secure salvation for them. Um, an Arminian would say something to the effect that Christ's death was intended for all, but only effective for those who exercise faith. So that, that would be kind of where a, a Calvinist and an, an Arminian would differ on this particular one. We, we could spend several Sunday school lessons kind of unpacking this particular point. I don't want to do that, but I would like to really quickly look at uh, the relevance of John 3.16 to that. Uh, but let, let me just say it a little bit kind of in a short defense of, uh, of limited atonement. Um, first of all, limited atonement is really badly named. Um, yes, it, it's kind of nice to start with L so that you get tulip when you kind of spell out everything in, uh, in the, the five points of Calvinism. But uh, the only group that would reject some form of limited atonement would be a universalist. Um, if, if Christ's death does not save every single human being from hell, then the atonement must be limited in some way. So in a sense, everyone believes in limited atonement. The fact that you know, Calvinists would uh, refer to theirs as limited atonement makes it sound like the, uh, the Arminian view is somehow less limited. And it's actually the opposite from that. So it's, it, it's poorly named. That makes it a little bit harder to defend, unfortunately. Um, and you know, the Arminian viewpoint kind of sounds good until you think about it. Um, what, what they're really saying is that Christ must have died for every sin except for the sin of unbelief. Um, and why is that particular sin not atoned for on the cross when every other t sin is atoned for? Another problem that that position would really run into is that if Christ paid the penalty for someone's sin and then that person doesn't exercise faith, um, then they're going to pay, pay that penalty again. And uh, that would kind of be double jeopardy or, or something to that effect. So th there, there are issues with the, the Arminian view, but you know, an Arminian would certainly point to John 3.16. Yes? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So Mark's point is that you know, the, the Arminian position makes belief meritorious. And I think that's the fundamental problem with Arminianism. A good Arminian does as much to, to limit the merit of uh, belief, but they can't get around the fact that you know, it, in their way of thinking, belief is meritorious and that, that that secures salvation. And the more that you look at the New Testament, the more you'll, you, you see that that just kind of runs afoul of uh, how salvation is described. Was there another question? So the, the question is, wouldn't that also um, deny original sin? Uh, um, yeah. Well, a, a, a theologically sound Arminian would say that, um, that Christ's death 
it makes it possible for people to believe. It kind of cancels out original sin somehow a little bit for everybody, maybe. I, I don't remember exactly how they state it. They, they, they recognize the problem that you're pointing out, and they, um, there's a theory that it's, it's actually fundamental to Arminianism called prevenient grace. And I, I think that they would say that Christ's death um, makes it possible for you to choose for everyone. Um, the biggest problem with that is you don't see prevenient grace ever once presented in the scriptures. And if it's central to your theology and you don't once see it in the scriptures, that, that might be an indication that you've got a little bit of an issue. Um, so I, th I think that's kind of what you're, you're getting at. And I, I don't want to get in, uh, off track too much. I just wanted to uh, ma make sure that everyone was kind of on board with what limited atonement is and whether John 3.16 really applies to it. The, the second half of the verse, uh, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, Calvinists and Arminians really should agree on, uh, that, that this doesn't pre present a problem for either system. It, it's the first half of the verse that an Arminian would, would kind of point to and say that this is showing that God's love isn't just to the elect, it's to the whole world. But if you look at what John is really saying, especially when you look in context, which we'll come to later, what John is saying is that uh, he's emphasizing the badness of what God loves, and that, that's what magnifies God's love. It's not, it's glorious because of how many people it covers, it's glorious because of how bad the world is. And so I don't think John 3.16 is really relevant to the, uh, the question of a limited atonement. Okay, so moving along in, in John 3.16, I want to spend a little bit of time on the, the next word, gave. And the, the more I thought about this, the more excited I, I got about this. And it wasn't planned this way, but it works really well with this being Christmas when we kind of celebrate God's uh, you know, gift of his son uh, uh, when, when Jesus came. But so it's kind of fun that this, this just happened to fall this week, but it wasn't planned that way. So if you were to ask someone who hasn't really experienced the new birth what the best possible gift that God could give would to be, that person would probably think in earthly terms. They would probably come up with something like wealth or wisdom and knowledge or maybe physical healing. Um, and, and that would certainly be a good gift. But if you kind of step back and think about it, uh, it would be trivial for God to provide any of those things. God spoke the world into existence. You know, it would take a small fraction of a second for God to, to give any of those things. And it wouldn't really tell you very much about how deep God's love is. It cost him a few moments of his time, and if you consider the fact that God's an eternal being, he's even got an abundance of time, so giving a small fraction of that cost him an incredibly small amount. Um, but God kind of sees past the, the problems that are usually at the forefront of our mind, and he focuses on our real problem. That's our, our sin problem. God's perfection prevents sinful, God-hating individuals from being in his presence. God's perfect justice requires that sin be dealt with perfectly justly. God's love is magnified in giving his one and only son to atone for our sin. It's the greatest uh, gift that God could possibly provide to a people that aren't just undeserving, but, but ill-deserving of, of that gift. And so that's um, kind of what, what's meant there by gave. Um, it, and if you kind of step back and look at other world religions, other pictures of God that you'll see in non-Christian religions, that God tends to be very human in that if, if we were in a, a position like God is, 
we would not exercise the sort of love that we see God exercising here. And the, the other religions very much have a God that's aloof, that wouldn't stoop to do something like this. Here we see God's love magnified by the extent that he goes to save un, unworthy individuals. You cannot have a more glorious love than we, than we find revealed in the scriptures. And no, no religion even comes close. I think that, that's kind of worth pointing out. But I think there's a great deal more to gave than just in the atonement that we've, we've talked about so far. And so I want to spend a little bit of time looking at that. And there, there's probably no better place to go than Romans. Uh, obviously, I don't have time to cover all of Romans, but I just have to point out a, a few things in Romans. Let me go ahead and, and, and read what, what Paul uh, is, is saying when he's kind of thinking about the magnitude of what God gave in, in Christ. So this is Romans 5, 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. There's there's a ton in here. Uh, would take several Sunday school lessons really to do, do justice to this section. Uh, and I'm not going to try, but just kind of looking at this phrase, if, if we were, you know, if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life? Paul's saying that there's a lot more to what God gave than simply the atonement. Um, Paul's talking about you know, already and not yet aspects of our salvation. Are we saved now? Yes. We're saved from the condemnation of sin. Are we saved in the sense that we have glorified bodies? Are we saved into a sinless state? Not yet. Paul's argument is that if God has already done the hard thing by reconciling to it, himself to us by the death of his son, we can be sure that he's going to do the comparatively easy things of completing our salvation in the future. So he's saying that there's a lot more to gave than just uh, atoning for our sins. Let's see. The, for a few years, this last verse kind of puzzled me a little bit. Paul was, is clearly kind of building to bigger and bigger things, and the, the way that I was reading Scripture at the time, this kind of felt like a, a flat note. Um, he, he's, he's building to greater and greater glory, but how does this verse top what came before it? I think the answer is that uh, this verse is talking about our reconciliation with God. Without Christ, we were separated from God. We were at enmity with him. The more that we know about God, the more that we hate God without what Christ has done for us. Now, thanks to the reconciliation that Christ has purchased, we can relate to God. The idea that we can have a relationship with an infinitely wise, glorious, loving, wondrous God, you know, the, the God that's revealed in Scripture, should completely astonish and astound us. Um, if we could understand what a privilege that relationship is, we would realize that you know, this is even better than the salvation that, that's purchased. 
And I, I'll come back to this because I think Paul does later in, in Romans chapter 8. So just kind of continuing what, what Paul is unpacking with the, with the gospel meaning. <clears throat> uh, I, I'm going to read 828. To, to me, this is probably the, uh, the, the promise that I find most astonishing in Scripture. Maybe, maybe that's not the same for everyone, but it's something that I just kind of keep coming back to and uh, recognizing I don't un- understand you know, even a small fraction of what's here. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This doesn't necessarily mean the good of our bank accounts or our social lives or, or even our health. It's a, a good that really surpasses those by, by quite a bit. If you read the next verse, I'm not going to take the time to do that. It's a good that makes us more like Christ. Um, but I, I don't want to dwell on this. I, I do want to point out, though, why it is that Paul can assert that this is true. And if we skip down to verse 32, we'll see why he, he can assert this. He's, he, has, he says what he says in 28, because he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? If God has already done the hard thing in sending his son to die, we can be confident that he will do the, the much easier things for him that are promised in Scripture. The the gift of his son most certainly includes Christ's substitutionary death on the cross, but it includes much more than that. And I I don't want to say anything at all to belittle the the atonement in any way. It's every bit as much of a a, a glorious gift as we think it is, but there's more. There's Christ's incarnation and Christ's perfect life of obedience. Not only did God place our sins uh, on Christ as our substitute, and then remove them completely from our account by putting them in Christ's account. But he gave us Christ's life of perfect act of obedience. We're not just saved from something very bad. We're saved for something very, very, very good. Eternity dwelling with God. God did not return, or Jesus, I'm sorry, didn't return to some spiritual form. He was resurrected with a body. We we see a a physical body. He eats with his disciples. They, They touch his physical body. Uh, after the resurrection, and he's going to keep that physical body. Um, he'll, he will, Jesus will dwell forever physically with us in the new heavens and the new earth. He will be our God, and we will be his people, or he will be our bridegroom, and we will be his bride. God isn't just giving us his son. He's giving us himself in a way that we can't fathom and will enjoy for all of eternity. So I there's there's a great deal here. I could spend a lot more time on it, but I want to really stress uh, the magnitude of what God gave us in John 3.16. Another word that's worth uh, at least mentioning is is only, the, the stress here is on the, the uniqueness of the gift, I think. The Son is the greatest gift that God could possibly give. God could have created the universe without a fall. He could have created the universe without a need for an atonement. In such a universe, people that live in that hypothetical universe would never understand the magnitude of God's love in the way that we will understand it. And you know, if you kind of wonder why it is that the world is this way, there's a hint here, I think, that we'll understand God in a, a deeper, richer way than we would in a world that might be a little bit nicer in terms of kind of creature comforts and, and things along that line. Um, 
I, I, I don't know that I understand all of that, but I, I, th I think there's hints here of, of that. One of the things that, that I mentioned is that if, if you talk to you know, someone who's maybe a nominal Christian <clears throat> that you know, kind of believes parts of the Bible but, but not big parts of it, they're probably familiar with John 3.16 and the idea that God is love. They'll use that maybe to reject big parts of the Bible that talk about God's other attributes, such as his justice and his wrath. But even John 3.16 has God's wrath in it. If you kind of look um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We would perish under the wrath of God without God's love and without what God has done. And so this verse can't be understood without understanding other aspects of, of God's wrath that people would use this verse to, to try to, to reject. So I thought it was just kind of worth pointing out that that, that that idea is right here just in this verse. We don't need to go to other verses that also clearly teach the same thing. Okay, I'd like to go back to 14 really briefly. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Jesus is saying that the offer of the gospel is like the offer of healing that God gave to the Israelites bitten by serpents in the wilderness. Simply look at the bronze serpent lifted up above the camp and be completely healed from a physical snake bite that will cause physical death. <clears throat> God's gift of his son to atone for our sins is an infinitely greater and more loving gift to us, far costlier. It didn't cost God very much to provide a remedy for snake bites. God could simply speak that into existence with a, a trivial amount of time. But, but what God did in sending his son is a far, far uh, richer, more lavish gift. Um, Jesus should be a treasure to us. Everyone burdened by sin and uh, condemnation should delight to look at him for healing and forgiveness. But they don't. Um, Sam Storms, I, I think, kind of summarized this very well. I wrote this before Tim's sermon about two weeks ago where he brought up kind of the same illustration. But it's such a good illustration, I, I just couldn't bear to take it out. So let me kind of quote Sam Storms. I think both Tim and Sam Storms are kind of looking back to uh, Jonathan Edwards. The truth and promise of the gospel of Jesus Christ are like spiritual honey. But how do I describe the taste of honey to someone who has no taste buds? I can break honey down into its many chemical constituents. I can describe for you its color and texture. I can even explain the intricate, uh, in intricate detail the process by which it's made. But the only way for you to enjoy the taste of honey, of the honey of eternal life, is to actually taste it. So taste it. Believe in Jesus and you will find him sweet to your soul and the most satisfying person that you've ever known. This doesn't just apply to unbelievers who have no concept of the taste of the honey, to unbelievers who don't have any capacity for its enjoyment. It applies equally to us. Jesus should be sweet honey to our souls. We should delight in meditating on his person. We should delight in understanding what he's accomplished for us more fully and more deeply. Um, I don't think anyone in this room has really scratched the surface of the treasures that are graciously offered to us in the Bible. This kind of sweet honey to the soul that Jesus Christ is. Um, I don't believe that we'll even have started to understand the greatness of God's love after a billion, billion years in heaven. 
But when I go home, I would rather watch TV than you know, sit down and study God's Word. And I, I'm sure many of us are, are, are that way. We, we don't understand fully what a treasure we have. Uh, I, when I do these studies, you know, I kind of have to choose to do this. I would, I would rather just relax and do some, something simple. At, at the end of writing one of these studies and kind of digging into the Bible or digging into a good commentary or a, a good sermon sometimes that I read, you know, I'm, I'm always glad that I did it. And I, 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 I never think, I wish I'd watched TV that night. <laughs> but at, at the time, it's always a difficult decision to make, and it's because I don't have as, as good a taste for honey as I should have. Um, and so I, I, I hope that I've kind of encouraged you to, to see the, the honey uh, in, in Scripture, to see you know, the goodness of God that, that's expressed in this verse. I'm going to say one more very quick thing about John 3.16, and then I'll move on, I, I promise. One of the things that might kind of jump out at you if you're reading John 3.16, or if you've got John 3.16 in your mind and you're reading 1 John 1.15, is they kind of seem to say the opposite thing. In, in 1 John 1.15, it says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So is it okay for God to love the world, which John 3.16 very clearly teaches, but it's not okay for us to? Um, and I, I think if you look at these and kind of think about it, they're, they're talking about different things. When, when God loves the world, he doesn't want to conform to the pattern of this world. He doesn't want to be like the world. He looks at a sinful world that's heading on a path for destruction and he steps in and he inter intervenes. That's the, the way that he loves the world. And there's certainly nothing wrong with us loving the world in that way. We won't love it you know, nearly to the extent that God loves it, but we can see uh, a world full of people that are uh, living in sin and headed towards destruction, and we could share the gospel. And in that, in that way, we would kind of love the world in the same way that God is loving the world in John 3.16. Here, in 1 John, John is talking about loving the world in the sense of saying, I don't want to read the Bible. I'm not interested in this. I would rather live as the world lives. I don't want to live the way uh, Christ would have me to live. Ed. Yeah. Yeah, so Ed point, pointed out that one type that you see for this in, in the Old Testament is Lot's wife. Lot and his family were commanded to free, flee Sodom and Gomorrah uh, before uh, destruction rained down on everyone in Sodom and Gomorrah that included 10 or fewer righteous people. Um, and they were told, do not look back. And Lot's wife looked back. And I don't think that was just kind of a glance over her shoulder. I think she was looking back longingly, thinking, you know, I, I'm going to miss that. <laughs> Um, and, and she was turned into a pillar of salt. <clears throat> okay. So, we, we made it through John 3.16. We'll get started on the rest of this chapter. We'll go quite a bit quicker through the rest of this chapter. I know that we slowed down a, a little bit here to stop and smell the roses. We will move more, more quickly from here on out. So, Following John 3.16, the text says uh, in 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, 
And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. I'm going to start by just asking what's meant by the world. And I, I think that the answer to that is that we, we've already talked about it. It's a, a system that's opposed to God. Um, world, cosmos is the, the Greek, can, can mean a variety of things. It could kind of mean the planet, which is maybe the main use of the world in English. Uh, could mean the universe. You know, and that, that's where the title of Carl Sagan's Cosmos uh, series comes from. But it can also kind of mean the world system, and, and that's the way that John uses it. And we do use cosmos that way in English. Uh, the magazine Cosmopolitan would, would kind of refer to you know, kind of how to live in the, in the world. That's what the, the title of that magazine is, is doing. And that's the meaning that John almost always has when world uh, comes up in, in the, the Gospel of John. You know, it, it wouldn't make very much sense if you know, world kind of referred to planet because you know, the kind of the, the you know, mass of uh, you know, iron nickel core and silicates doesn't need salvation. It's the, the people that live on it, the society that lives on it that does need salvation. And by the, by the way, this is really another indication that we're on the right track with how we read John 3.16, uh, where God's love is applied to a world that's opposed to him, and that's what magnifies God's love, not the, the size of the world. This John very clearly means world in, in 17, the, the way that we defined it. Um, does this mean that everyone in the world is going to be saved? Well, no, that gets clarified in, in the later verses. But it means that people out of the world will be saved. If you look at 17 to 18, one of the things that you'll very commonly hear uh, maybe nominal Christians speak in a way that they believe that people are kind of neutral towards God. They could kind of decide for God and decide against God. We say nothing of the sort in these verses. There are two types of people in the world. Those, when exposed to God's light, they flee from it. They don't want to have anything to do with it. And then those who are drawn to the light. But there's no one that reacts in a way that's neutral towards God. That, that position is just completely incompatible with th these verses. Verse 18 says, um, let's see, th that uh, Jesus did not come to condemn the world. But if Jesus didn't condemn the world, why, according to the, these verses, does anyone end up condemned? And the answer is that they demonstrate that they are already condemned by the rejection of Jesus. So think back to the demonstration of God's love that we've just seen. How wicked is it for someone to see this and respond to such amazing love by spitting in God's face? Such a wicked response to the unsurpassed love of, that God has shown uh, condemns those that reject it. Let me give you kind of a picture of that. Suppose that a, a music critic were to trash either Beethoven's Ninth Symphony or, or Wagner's Ring Cycle or another really great work that has stood the crest of time. Suppose that an art critic were to snub the Mona Lisa. Suppose a movie critic watched uh, Citizen Kane or 2001 or Saving Private Ryan or Aliens or Monty Python and the Holy Grail and then wrote a scathing review. Um, those, those works of art have stood the test of time 
And if you read a negative review of them, you wouldn't change your opinion about those works of art based on that review, but that would say a lot about the reviewer. You probably wouldn't have much respect for that individual's opinion. You know, they're, they're not condemning um, one of these great works of art, they're condemning themselves. They're, they're showing that they don't have good taste at what they're uh, criticizing. Um, now, there, there's a difference, of course. It, it's not morally wrong to have poor taste in art and not to see the greatness in you know, a work that has st stood the test of time. But it certainly is morally wrong to see Christ and not to want to have anything to do with him. It, doesn't sh it, it, it shows that there's a problem that already exists, and that's why the, these people are condemned already. Uh, Jesus coming is just kind of bringing that to the surface. Was there a question? Okay. So um, thinking back to John 3.16, what you know, irony might John be pointing out in, in these verses that follow it? And you know, in John, John 3.16, we see one of the most beautiful statements of uh, how you know, incompre un uh, incomprehensibly glorious God's love is. Uh, when it's applied to ill-deserving sinners like us. There are many aspects of, uh, of God that will be more fully revealed in the final state, but I, I really do think that it's hard to, for me to picture a fuller revelation of God's love than what he did in sending Christ. Now, we might more fully understand what that means, but I think this is the clearest demonstration of God's love that could, that could possibly be, be given. What's the human response to that? Rather than worship God, rather than be drawn to a gloriously loving God who freely provides salvation, the world, you know, this world system that's opposed to God, prefers darkness compared to that. They hate the light. They refuse to come to the light, not because the light is bad, but because the light breaks down human pride. The light shows plainly their inability to do good, and it shows plainly their need for uh, coming to God for any hope of any righteous standing. I'm going to go ahead and move us to 21. <clears throat> What's the connection between works and coming to the light in verse 21? It might kind of sound like if, if we do enough good works, might we be drawn to the light? You know, if, if you kind of look at the first thing, John is saying that you know, people who, who do bad things, when the light shines, they want to get out of the light because it shows what they're doing is bad. So could someone starts to do some good things and, and want to be drawn to the light. That's kind of what you would expect John to write if you didn't know theology well, um, but he doesn't. It, the, the analogy goes a slightly different way than you, you would expect it to go, but whoever does what is true, which is kind of what you're expecting to come, comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. John is really makes clear that it's not this individual's you know, own tendency to do good works that's bringing them, it's God doing good works in them that is what's causing them to respond positively to the light. The, the problem is that on our own we don't do good works. Those who are drawn to the light are drawn because God is doing good works in them. Is, is John making too wide a d distinction though? Are there just two categories of people? Those who do evil works, only evil works, and because of that, avoid the light, and those who only do good works? Now, that's a fair question to ask. John can be very black and white 
maybe when shades of gray are appropriate, but I don't think that's the case here. I think John is really right on the money. Um, John is, is stating that unbelievers only do evil works, and this idea is found elsewhere in Scripture. Um, one place I would go is, uh, this is in the, in the Upper Room Discourse later in John. We're not going to get this far this time. We'll come back to here in a few years, Lord willing. But in John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If you think to Jesus' other teaching, Jesus will kind of talk about two different types of trees. Bad trees that only bear bad fruit, good trees that only bear good fruit. Without Jesus, you're not going to bear any good fruit at all. All of your works are bad. And that should cause us to scratch our heads a little bit. Um, because we, we see a lot of unbelievers that, that do seemingly good things. You know, there, there, there have to be some unbelievers in an organization like Doctors Without Borders, where doctors volunteer their time to go to countries that, that need good medical care and, and provide you know, good medical care to, to people in need. There's you know, wealthy people that donate their money. Sometimes they'll, they'll do this anonymously you know, to build hospitals and you know, things that kind of provide a, a genuine benefit for the world. So is, is John really saying that if that individual is an unbeliever, that, that, that those works are, are, are bad works that are causing that individual to draw away from the light? And I would have to say yes. Um, we, 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 can do, we can look at it a few ways. We can say that you know, um, you know, when an unbeliever's works appear to be good, there's going to be a mixture of good and imperfect motives in that. There's going to be human pride that, that's involved in that. But I, I think more fundamentally, you know, even a seemingly good work done by an unbeliever is not done for God's glory. And that in that sense, it's done in rebellion to God. The, the purpose of creation is to point to God's glory. And if a work isn't done for God's glory, there's really nothing of lasting good in it. Yes, Emmanuel. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Yes. Yeah. 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 Yep. One of the things that Tim has pointed out in this series, where, where sanctification is really a big part of this series, is that, you know, yes, sanctification is synergistic, but it's mostly God and just a little bit us. <laughs> okay. Um, so I, I want to come back to the, the same idea in verse 21 again. Um, I'll, I'll read that. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. We've already kind of talked about this, but I want to make sure that, to get this across. Because the first part of 21 kind of sounds like someone that you know, on their own is doing a bit more good than average, kind of a, a morally super, superior person. And that person is drawn to the light. 
and that would be a, a somewhat subtle salvation by merit. I'm, I'm seeing a lot of cringing out there. That's good. We, we recognize that that's not what John is saying because that can't possibly be right. It's not uh, consistent with Scripture at all. Um, but can we see that in the text? And we, we do. The, the works are being carried out in God. John is really careful to emphasize that. I think the picture that John is, is trying to give here is that God is at work in a heart. The only, way a the, the, the only way biblically that anyone can do good works is through regeneration. So to me, um, this must mean that John is considering in, in this verse a regenerated heart. And he's uh, comparing it to unregenerated hearts that, that are, are uh, repelled by the light in previous verses. So we've got a picture of two individuals. One's unregenerate. That person only does bad works. They might be what I would call relatively good bad works, building hospitals or you know, building houses for the homeless or, or, or things along those lines. But they're done fundamentally in opposition to God. No thought of God's glory is given in, in those works. The light shows um, that, that a work might appear good to the world, but it's not in fact a good work. Um, no one wants the light shown on, on those works, good or bad, um, all of which really are, are, are bad in the end when, when seen in the light of Christ. But those are not the only works, uh, but those are the only works that unbelievers do, bad works, uh, at least as they would appear in the light of Christ. So they hate the light and they avoid the light, lest their works should be exposed. The believer, through the Holy Spirit, is able to do good works. According to Jesus' teaching elsewhere, that person is no longer a bad tree which only bears bad fruit, but, but, but that person is now a good tree that bears good fruit. That person, once regenerated, is doing good works and would naturally be drawn to the light according to the picture um, that in these verses to see better the good works that God is causing them to do. Um, Piper did a really good job summarizing this, and so I'm going to uh, close with a, a quotation from John Piper. In other words, the ultimate contrast between the believer and the unbeliever is not that one hates the light and the other loves it. That's true, and it's vastly important. And the ultimate contrast is not that the unbeliever will not uh, come to Jesus and the believer will. That's also true, and that's also vastly important. The ultimate contrast is that the believer, the one who loves the light and the one who comes to Jesus, comes by the grace of God. That is, he comes with a profound sense of God-dependent humility that every good thing that he does, he is only able to do in God. And that means only by God's power. Whoever does uh, what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so with that, I'm going to close. Thank you.